0: I'm Howard Parker, and welcome to Bluegrass Stories. In today's podcast, Katie Daly interviews Tom Minty, owner of the Patuxent Music Record Label and Recording Studio. Katie and Tom talk about the early days of bluegrass and country music in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. Tom talks about learning the music, his relationship with Buzz Busby, and of course, the business of owning a record label. Here's Katie with Tom Minty.
1: Tell me about your uh, growing up. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Who did you grow up with? Well, I'm and not, where
2: did music get introduced to your life? I haven't completed the process yet. And that's a good thing, because uh, grown-ups are boring. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm trying to avoid it. But uh, right here in Rockville, and um, my parents, are, well, my Dad liked country and bluegrass Um, when they were dating and up until uh, they started having kids, they spent a lot of time in uh, the the country music clubs in in DC. And uh, Jimmy Dean was here and um, there was a lot of bluegrass here. And it was just uh, before the rock and roll era Country was king in D.C. Right, and, and all the young people uh, loved it and and went went to those shows. Uh, mostly people that worked for Connie B Gay, uh, you know Jimmy Dean, Roy Clark, and and uh, they had the city pretty much tied up. But there was a lot of them. So, um, but Mom had also she liked um, jazz and and vocalists you know, Sinatra and, and uh, Robert Goulet, which I don't get why anybody likes him. Sorry, Robert. It's the mustache. <laughs> but, uh, but she had those records, but she also had um, Louis Armstrong and, and uh, Benny Goodman and, and stuff like that. And dad had Flatten & Scruggs and um, George Jones and, and stuff like that, and Ernest Tubb, Hank Snow. So that music was playing all the time. Oh, and, on radio stations or and, on and, records? And records in the house. And then we listened to WDON. Right. And that was our local country station. And, and it was in the very last days of uh, country and bluegrass not being separate. So they would, you know, you'd hear Lester Earl and Bill Monroe. And then the latest country um, hits of the day. And um, until... Do you remember the song, um, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden? Sure, Lyd Anderson. Okay. When that song came out, Dad said, that ain't country. This station's not going to be played in our house anymore. Wow. A man of principle. So so I had to uh, get it back on um, whatever WTOP or whatever he started listening to before he got home from work. I was still sneaking my WDON in a little bit and uh another thing (laughs) he loved the osborne brothers so uh one time the osborne brothers were going to be on tv and he even took off work early so that supper would be done by the time the osborne brothers came on so it was time so he turned on the tv everybody had to be quiet here comes sonny and bob and they had drums steel guitar and they were plugged in oh. he watched about half of a song got out of his chair switched the tv off went to the closet got all the osborne brothers records took them out put them in the trash can and went to bed <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow so- so So this explains your traditionalist
2: leanings right (laughs) so i got them out of the trash i still have those records well i love traditional bluegrass and and i love to play traditional bluegrass because it, it gives me the chills you know and but having said that i like a lot of music and um some of the newer players that don't play traditional are such virtuosos or virtuosi, however the right word is. I guess it depends on where you come from. Around here, it's virtuosos <laughs> 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 that that are so great on their instruments and, and play perfect, Like especially like Chris Thiele. Uh He's amazing. And so um, I like his music for that reason. I call that head music because it affects your brain, you know? You think, wow, how's he do that? But like Lester and Earl, the Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Martin, and Red Allen, and Monroe, that is heart music. And it just goes to the heart and and affects you that way. So music is big. And um, like some jazz is, is head music, some jazz is heart music. So. And there's feet music too. It gets you dancing, right? It wouldn't be. And who would that be? Feet music, Mm -hmm. like old time string bands, uh, big band music, stuff like that. Um, Sometimes it it wouldn't be music. Not it's not always true, but sometimes it wouldn't be music that you would just sit in a chair and listen to, because the purpose of it is to get your feet moving, and that's that's how you enjoy that music the best. You know? So you play uh, how many instruments? Mandolin, of course. Well, how many do I play or how many do I play well? Uh, <laughs> well, mandolin and accordion and, and guitar and bass. Right. And that's about it that I would actually play in front of anybody. Have but, you ever tried to play fiddle? Oh yeah. Um, I tried it for a while and people kind of put up with it, because they knew I was learning. They'd sort of cringe when I'd hit a bad note. Then it got to where they were cringing when I'd walk up with the case, okay? So <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, this I'm not going to torture people anymore. I'm going to try to get better on the mandolin and, and let the fiddle go. All right.
1: So let's talk about uh, some of the bands that you have played with over the years, and at
2: what age did you start? All right, well, I started young, you know, teenager, going to festivals and, and jamming and, um, and trying to be in the background and, and not get too many dirty looks, you know, mm-hmm. and just try to learn. But um, about 1980 or 79, 80, something like that, I started going to um, some of the open mics, and there was one at... Um, Gallagher's Pub in, in Connecticut Avenue and uh, there was one in Rockville at an Italian restaurant and I met people there that that I still play music with today um and um so um some of us at, that were going to these open mics decided to get together and and form a band and it was the Montgomery County Ramblers all right and and who was in that band um uh, Jim Barnett um guitar and a young guy that was um, just finishing high school Jim Reed on the banjo and Mike Marceau on the bass and me and we got um, a weekly gig at O'Brien's barbecue in Bethesda
1: and this was what year
2: this was 83 by now and, 82 or 83 and yeah. what was what was your take after an evening of music how much money? Uh, we got forty dollars a piece. Oh, so that's that, pretty good. That, that was pretty good, and I, I kind of thought that that's the way it worked because we kind of looked into that weekly gig, mm-hmm. and that lasted um, close to a year. But it kind of they dried up, and then I found out it was kind of hard to was harder than I thought to get gigs and, and harder to make forty dollars a man. But um, Anyway, it wasn't as hard as it is now because the, the Bluegrass Bulletin Board was going on WAMU with uh, Carol Thompson and Pixie Christie, So they would announce all the bands. And then since Bluegrass was so popular then, if a new venue opened, they would call the bands that were mentioned on there. They'd, they would call Pixie or whatever and find out how to get in touch with them. So without too much effort, a few gigs just came in. And um, that that was pretty good. That that would never happen now on, on any level. Uh, you have to push and, and bother people until they either say, "Oh, all right," or never call me again. You know, you just have to push and push and push to try to get the simplest, cheapest gigs. Why is that? Because there's so many bands now and so many people playing. The market is flooded. And there used to be more venues than there were bands, at least in DC area.
1: Right. And people came out. Do you think people go out as much as they?
2: No, because the, the fan base is getting older in this area. Mm-hmm. So people don't want to go out at night, especially, um, you know, people used to go out and have a few beers and, and watch bluegrass. And, and now they're afraid to do that because they might get stopped on the way home. So um, that it's it's kind of, dried up in DC area right but there are several clubs downtown DC and there's younger bands playing at them that, that live in the city and so it's not gone but it, um, it's just changed uh,
1: and then also you have to do so much advertising on your own I mean the social media and you it, it's all changed about how the bands have to operate
2: yeah and, but that's that's free advertising which you didn't used to get. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a good thing. You can get your name out there and, and, and without um, much effort, as long as you know how to work the thing, which is not very difficult. Um, but um, anyway, the, the people are, are buying music that they want to hear. And so, um, if you want to sell your music you got to do something that people want to hear you know it's the marketplace so if you you can't adjust to the times you you might just be sitting in the living room picking
1: right now uh, rockville is maybe closer to dc than baltimore but you spent some time up in the baltimore area also
2: yeah well there was that that was the hardcore Bluegrass in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the working class people more more so than white collar people. And they liked the Barroom Bluegrass. So. Um, and what bands would that be?
1: Well. Dell worked uh, up there for a while. D- D-
2: Dell and uh, Dell was someplace just about every weekend. So I made a lot of trips up there. Walt Hensley was st- still playing. When I started getting out on my own and traveling, I'd go to see him. Earl Taylor was already moved out of the area, so I had to listen to him on record, but um, I heard everybody talking about it and how he influenced everybody, and and, uh, and um, so it was great. But... Um, Did you ever get to see him live? Yeah, but not, not in Baltimore. Oh. You know, <laughs> see, that was the thing. So, he, yeah, he, he was kind of out on the festival circuit a little bit in the 80s. So... Um, anyway let's see where were we okay montgomery county ramblers well that that kind of went went for a while and then um i was at ralph stanley's festival and um i met this guy that knew every ralph stanley song and we did a lot of them and then um, larry sparks was on stage that night and it was pouring down rain and there was only two people in the audience. It was me and this guy that knew all the Stanley Brothers songs. And I says, where are you from anyway? He says, I'm from Maryland. I'm like, wow. (laughs) So that was Danny Beach. So we we switched the band up and he lived right on the Patuxent River. So we called Patuxent Partners and uh, we kind of incorporated him into the group that, that we already had and changed the name of. And, and how much did the music change? The music that, you, if he's doing all the Stanley Brothers it, stuff. It, it changed a lot because uh, we still kept some of the old songs because Jim Barnett liked the Kentucky Colonels. I like Clarence, them too. Clarence White. and yeah. We still did some of their stuff, but we did a lot more Stanleys because um, Danny and I could sing that stuff pretty good because we'd been listening to it forever. you mm-hmm. know. So that's how that happened. And... Um, and we got to play. I mean, we never traveled, you know, but we played Gettysburg, and we played a lot of uh, the lo- local places like the Sandpiper up in Baltimore. Partners too, and um, it was a, it was a good time.
1: Partners too was in Centerville, Virginia. Yeah. Gettysburg is only about an
2: hour and a half from the D.C. area. Right. So we went up there one time just to hang out and. Pick and uh, we got into the band contest and we won. So we got to play the next festival on the stage okay. as a paid band. And um, he, then after that, he, he kept having us back for you know, maybe about 10 years or so, we played well, that. That's
1: <laughs> a long run. Yeah. So you were discovered at Gettysburg, would you say? I, I
2: guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, and then, um, well, I don't know how, how uh, not any big bluegrass uh, performance luminary. So I don't want to get too deep into it because for the listener's sake. So, um, but I will tell you about uh, getting a chance to work with Buzz Busby. Um, Tell them who Buzz Buzz Busby. Well, Buzz Busby is considered by many, including me to be the father of DC bluegrass. He came here in 1951 from Louisiana and um, he started playing and he got a uh, afternoon TV show, daily TV show on uh, WRC Channel 4. And people and loved that show because it, it was had a lot of special effects and good music. It was produced by uh, Bob Hope's producer, so hmm. it was professionally done. And a lot of people in this area got turned on to Bluegrass because of that program and Buzz's music Was he,
1: uh, uh, I thought he had worked, or was work he does at the FBI when he came to DC.
2: Yeah, he got, uh, he was recruited out of high school by the FBI, Mm -hmm. and he moved up here and got a job, and um, he worked in the fingerprint lab. But, um, and at night he was out playing in bars, so uh, the FBI said, we don't want our agents, or our employees rather, um, in bars at night and so you have to stop going to bars or you're out so he says well i'm going to play music so he quit the, the fbi because of bluegrass gave so, up a government job yeah okay his wife was not pleased <laughs> I guess but, not. but a- after um, after he got the tv show she she was happy open, with him yeah, again yeah for a while <laughs> and how long did that tv show last it only went for
1: um six months, now you mentioned special effects. you told me once that they they, they miniaturized him and put mm-hmm. him in a mailbox, and
2: they put him on on the flap of the you know the old style uh, country mailbox, yes, so the the mailbox would slowly open, and you'd see them playing on that mail mailbox. and uh, yeah a lot of people remember that
1: pretty sophisticated, yeah,
2: and and TV was new to um you know, regular middle-class people then. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it was several years old, but just regular people could just afford to buy a TV set in the mid-50s. And, and um, so it was exciting to, to everybody. And Buzz told me once that um, he got in a cab and the cab driver says, hey, I saw you on TV. You know, it wasn't even a music fan. It was just somebody, a, a local person that liked to watch that show, you know now did he host it us you know
1: like an mc or, or did he just play music no they,
2: they had a whole show worked up and they had their alter egos ham and scram yeah. would come on and do a comedy skit and then the, at the close of the show they would do the top five country hits of the day that were the top billboard top five in their own bluegrass style wow yeah so they had to work and, and, and learn all those songs and um do that every day.
1: So bluegrass has been uh, adapting rock and roll songs to uh, bluegrass for years and
2: years and years. Yeah, rock and roll and country and everything. Mac Wiseman said you can grass anything. So uh, I guess within reason, I don't know, like the 1812 Overture would work too well. But. <laughs> <laughs> well as
1: long as you have the cannons, who yeah. cares? <laughs> All right, so you are a big fan of Buzz Buzzy and he influenced your playing?
2: Yes, Um, in fact. um,
1: What was different about him, his mandolin, as opposed to, say, Bill Monroe's mandolin playing?
2: Okay, well, Buzz learned all of Bill Monroe's stuff and he could play it, but what he and Scott Stoneman did, and they were about the same age and they were both young and here in D.C., they would listen to Benny Martin fiddle player. Uh, on the fiddle and, and on his breaks on flattened & Scruggs songs, especially in other stuff. And they would try to play him note for note. And uh, of course, Scott would learn it on the fiddle and Buzz would learn that fiddle style on the mandolin. So he could do a shuffle and double stops. And he did a fast tremolo. Um, to emulate fiddle playing on the mandolin. That's what's different about his style. Hmm, Interesting, all right.
1: And so after the TV show, he stayed around this area and played?
2: Uh, No, he went um, to the Louisiana Hayride. That was a big deal. Yeah, and um, he was there for a year and then he came back to DC and uh, pretty much uh, played clubs and and, uh, local stuff.
1: I saw a poster once that he was the headliner on the Louisiana payride,
2: and Elvis was way below Buzz's Yeah, name. that that was neat. That's I've seen that too, and uh, that's pretty impressive. But Buzz said that uh, the first night that someone's a member, they get the top spot. So it wasn't that he was outselling Elvis, but they did give him that honor of having the top spot on the billing the first night he was there. Oh,
1: yeah, that changes my
2: perception. Well, <laughs> well, it makes it a little more realistic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, so then he came back to D.C. Were you playing with him at all, ever?
2: Well, um, of course, this all happened in the 50s. So, oh, I see. So you yeah. weren't born yet. No, well, barely. So um, anyway... Um, dad always talked about Buzz Busby, seeing him at the Pine Tavern uh, at 6th and Massachusetts Avenue, Northwest and um, so and, and dad had some of his records and I loved them, me and the jukebox and some other ones anyway um, I found out on the Bluegrass Bulletin Board that Buzz Busby was going to be playing so um, I went, it was at the Friendly Inn and I got there, and I was totally disappointed because he wasn't playing bluegrass. He was playing electric guitar. Mm. He had a country band. And so uh, I, I met him, though, and I said, Buzz, um, do you have your mandolin? He says, it's in the car, but people like the country sound. He says, but if you really want to hear it, I'll, I'll get it for the next set. So he brought it in, and he played a little bit. And um, Buzz was very personable and, and nice, and he he remembered his fans. And um, so um, the next time I saw him was with um, Al Jones and, and Don Stover. They played in the club, and that was a bluegrass gig. And, and he remembered me and remembered my name, which was amazing. And um, so I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm in with Buzz Busby. I'm, with, I, I'm a friend of the famous Buzz Busby. Okay, well the next time I saw him was at uh, Larry's place in Mechanicsville. I was playing there and I was the third string mandolin player. It was It was Dean Stoneman's band who was a mandolin player right So Dean Dean's health was up and down so sometimes he couldn't make it. He'd call Brian Deere. And if Brian couldn't make it either, they'd call me. I was number three on the mandolin list. You Who know? was number four? I don't think there was a number four because I was going to make it no matter what. I wanted to pick, you know. So uh, anyway, number four number three might have been uh, just get somebody off the street. And I was number four, I don't know. But uh, so I was there playing and uh, Buzz came in, Buzz and Lucky Sailor came in, <laughs> and they sat right at the front table that abuts the stage, you know. And they were expecting to see Dean and hang out with him, and well, they got me. So um, every time I'd take a break on the mandolin, Buzz would just point at me and laugh. <laughs> and, 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 and it got to be a little disconcerting, you know. So, um, we went on a break and uh, I went and I I sat at the table and I said, Buzz, uh, what's so funny? He says, oh son, don't take me wrong. Uh, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I just thought what you was attempting to do was humorous. (laughs) (laughs) He said, look, why don't you come over to my place and I'll show you the right way to do it. I said, you got yourself a deal. Well
1: at least he made an attempt to make you better, right?
2: Yeah, so uh, me and Brian Deer went over there and- uh, Where did he live? Columbia. Wow, out in, there. Columbia, mm-hmm. Maryland, yeah. Not the one down in South America, but the, <laughs> the other one. So um, I started going over there and he would show me stuff. A lot of it I couldn't do. And he was a little impatient. After a couple of times he'd say, Look, I'll just show you something easy, you know. So, but anyway, I did absorb some of it. And um then uh I got to ended up playing in his band on the bass. He wanted a guitar player. He st- he wanted to start his band up again. He had this big retirement thing at the Birchmere. This is later. This is uh the late 80s by now. And uh So he sat around watching soap operas all day for a month or so, and he couldn't stand it. So he decided to start up a band again. And he called me, he says, "Uh, I want to start the band up again. Can you back me up on the guitar? I said, yeah, I I think so. He says, well, come on up here and bring your guitar and and bring a banjo player. (laughs) And he says, now look, if you can't cut it, I'm gonna tell you and uh, I'll get somebody else. Can you handle that?" And I said, okay, I'll try. So I got Mark Delaney and we went up there and we- He was a great banjo player. Yeah, we played for a couple of hours. He said, well, I reckon you'll do. Uh, we're gonna play every Sunday at this um, Champs bar in, hmm. in Jessup. Okay, so uh, I thought, yeah, I got, finally got to the, got the, be in the big time to play in this bar <laughs> so um i got home and um and this is before cell phones and all that so the phone was ringing off the hook and it was buzz he says can you play a bass i said no i don't believe i can he says well do you have a bass i said no he says well get your bass and play bass with me um, I had to give the guitar job to Lucky Sailor because he gave me a TV set. <laughs> I said, Buzz, I thought you was gonna be a professional. He says, I know, but a is a TV. <laughs> That's true. And <laughs> it's true. TV is a TV. So um, the next day, that was on a Tuesday. The next day, I went to Chris Warner's shop and bought a bass. And that Sunday we played the first gig and um, it was pretty easy. Uh, it was so easy, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, wow, what, what what's all this big deal about playing the bass, you know? Okay, so then we got another gig on Friday nights in Manassas, so it was two nights a week. And um, Were you in school at this time? Or um, where were you in your life? I was working, doing heating and air conditioning, mm-hmm. and uh, I think part time in college. So, um, anyway, somebody, some other local guy that had a band, saw me playing with Buzz Busby. Bass. Yeah. He says, Can you play uh, at the Tiffany Tavern, the bass with me Saturday? i like, Oh, yeah, I'll be there. So I got to Tiffany Tavern, and I couldn't play with anything, because um, I figured it out. When I was playing with Buzz and Lucky, their timing was so good, I was just following them. But when I got to the Tiffany Tavern, to I, set the I was supposed to set the time, right. and, and I was all over the place, and it was miserable. So um, I never played the bass with anybody else again after What'd you do? Did you sell it? Um, I kept it for a while, and and I use it in the studio sometimes. Interesting. Yeah.
1: All right. So then, where did
2: you go in your musical journey? Well, just um, Patuxent Partners is still going. We're After play- how many years? Um, thirty-five years, something like that. Wow. And we're playing a little, but I just got um, uh, we ha- I have a new record out with two young players, Mason Vine, Ben Somerville, and I previously had one with Mason and Ben, but um, it was Ben was a sideman, but we brought him in, so it's just a trio, mandolin, guitar, and bass, and uh, it's mainly based on vocal harmony, and uh, we're going to work that for a while. The, the record came out pretty well, so um, we got a couple shows down in Southern Virginia this weekend, and we're going to... Um, Got some in June. Then we're going to Canada and do a two-week thing in the fall, and it's a lot of fun. Um, no banjo, no fiddle, but. Um, and what material are you singing? All right, well, it's a wide variety of stuff. Uh, of course, I bring some traditional music, old-time and bluegrass, and uh, Mason writes some songs, and and he's a big fan of Tony Rice style guitar and he brings who isn't uh, yeah and uh so he comes from that and then ben um he he grew up listening to alternative rock and pop music and, and a little bluegrass so we're doing like a bob dylan song and we're doing a song from uh, velvet underground that's on the record which i never heard of until we did the record and uh probably never hear of again. I mean, I'm not gonna go out and buy the records, but I do like this song and and, uh, we came up with a pretty good acoustic arrangement of it. Which one of their songs was it? It's called, uh, There She Goes Again. So it was written by Lou Reed, not the Bluegrass Lou Reed, the other one. So anyway, that's the music thing. So, um, and, so right, but st- you're still playing with Patuxent Partners. Yeah, we still we had a gig yesterday in Southern Maryland, and um, it was a lot of fun. And um, but um, this the, the trio thing, uh, we're willing to travel, and and it's only three people, so it's easy mm-hmm. set up, and so that's in between the Patuxent Partners thing, right? It shows, you know. And you have a, a jazz you play with a jazz group. Yeah. Um, We have Buffalo Nickel Band, who's also been playing for 30 years. And um, I play the mandolin and accordion and that, and we do old swing tunes and a little bit of Western swing. So uh, what has happened with Patuxent music? Is that still, uh, are you doing that between the gigs? Or what is? Yeah, we just, um, well, we have that new trio album with myself, Mason, and Ben. Um, Jeff Scroggins in Colorado. Has a new album out that I recorded, and um, it's on the charts and um, doing well. Danny Paisley's new album is on the charts, yay! Which, which a song that I wrote. Really? So, ah, um, uh, see that. I didn't know you were a songwriter. Yeah, I'm fixing to get go out and pick out my Cadillac right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can find an old. Um, 1981 Cadillac in the Junkyard without too much rust on it. What's the name of the song? (laughs) That's Why I'm Lonesome. So it's the title song of the album and I'm very happy and pleased that that Danny chose to do. How exciting. I wonder if there's a video anywhere. Uh, There might be because um, I think someone um, videoed it when we were at Luckett's, when they were at Luckett's and they got me up to sing it with them. So it's, it's on Facebook. Great. Find it I'm gonna lift it. Okay, and um, you remember Brian Bowers? I do. He With has the auto harp. Yeah, he has a new record out that, that um, I released. Um, that Danny nicely produced and recorded, and we're putting putting it out on Patuxent. and it's now available. So we're still moving. Um, um, and the, this is the inaugural recording, you and me sitting here talking of my new studio set up in my in my house. And so we'll see how it comes out. So Patuxent Music is still located in Rockville. Yeah. The the
1: old studio is on the other side of Rockville. Right. And this is a this your house is quite nice and it's very comfortable to record here.
2: It we had um a rehearsal here. Oh, another band I play with is, is Tex Rabinowitz. Who, <laughs> and uh, so I guess some of you DC people know him. He, he was a rockabilly legend in DC. And um, so he's still playing. And um, so we had a rehearsal here in this room and we had a um, six piece band and had drums and steel guitar, so it all fit. But um, I don't know what it'll be like recording uh, a five piece band with the microphone set up, but we'll figure something out. And I've got um, other studios that that are close by in the area that that I can hire to to do some recording and then I can do tracking and all the mixing and stuff here. Right. So, yeah.
1: Well, if the seldom scene could work at the little stage at the cellar door, I think they could work this living room
2: if they want to record here, uh, that'll <laughs> be
1: fine. We'll,
2: we'll, we'll I, squeeze them I've in
1: just here. seen bluegrass, you know overcome a lot of uh, different conditions to get the music done. Yeah,
2: anyway, um, so yeah, that's Patuxent Music. Um, we've got 332 albums done since we started. Really? Have, yeah, and uh, we're still working on them. I got two two more I'm working on now. There's a band from uh, Pennsylvania, way up in Pennsylvania, Serene Green, I don't know if you've heard them or not, they, they, they played at Luckett's uh, recently, and they're young fellas and super pickers, and, and they wrote their own material, and uh, I just finished. Uh, if they were at Luckett's, they're probably more on the traditional side, am I correct? Uh, their songs are not traditional. The way they play them is, is, is pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. They write uh, topical songs about things that young people think about uh, so you can. and I've it. long forgotten what all that was <laughs> <laughs> and um, so anyway and, and so that's and that's their audience too so their audience will get to hear songs that they relate to being more um, uh, suburban youth than country people but they'll get to hear the, the instruments played in, in a kind of traditional way. well that's great attracting
1: yeah. young audience yeah. that's what we, bluegrass needs
2: that yeah we do and who's the other group that you're uh there's brothers uh, the mosley brothers they're from the maryland pennsylvania line up around york and a little west of there and uh they grew up in a family band and um they're, they've started their own band and, and they're good. And they were in the um, DCBU band contest. Right. I, I don't know, so if anybody was there, you got to hear them, they're great too.
1: The so. DC, B, DC Bluegrass Union has done a lot to promote bands and songwriters with contests and and they get to come back and play uh, concerts and mm-hmm. things, That uh, so they've done a lot. They're still active in the Washington area. Yeah. How do you get into the recording business? Well, and what are the skills you need? I mean, good ears, I guess. but what are the business skills that you need to run a record label?
2: I wish I knew. I'd be <laughs> I'd be in better shape if I knew, but um, well, let's see. Um, I have um, a couple of great employees, um, Ben Somerville. Uh, who helps me with the engineering. Doesn't he? In fact, he's the engineer on most of the recent albums. And um, Rob Benzing, who is a technician and, and helps with the recording as well. But, um, and that's for the sessions, but the, the rest of it is a, is a one man operation. So um, the mixing and, and um, all that, the rest of the technical stuff, plus all the business stuff. I'm, I do, and it's it's time-consuming, but um, it, it ain't rocket science. Uh, you know, it's uh, you can usually look up how to do all that stuff. But the way I got into it, um, of course, I always um, wanted to take the music home with me that I went to see. So I had to start with the cassette. Recorder and go around and and record bands that that I went to see, and uh, so I got a little familiar with with how to use rudimentary equipment um, just by doing that. And um, then uh, when I started my own band, I wanted to record something, demos and and all that. So I went out and I bought a reel-to-reel tape deck. Mm-hmm and um primarily to record my band but um, another reason i got it was if you put it on the slowest speed and uh got the thinnest tape you could get i think three hours of of recording so um if something came on the radio that I didn't want to miss, I could leave and, 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 and get it and record it. So that's another reason I bought the real to real. Anyway, um, a local guy that played music, he he knew that I had that reel to reel player, recorder. So um, he wanted me to record his band and put out a demo so i recorded them i used my um, pa system and mixed it live to two track on on that reel to reel and it came out pretty good and he made 500 copies of it on cassette and and just gave them all away as demos but it had my name on it uh-huh. as recording it uh-huh so people heard that was that something you asked him
1: to do or he... no
2: i didn't even know he was going to do that well that okay. was good So people heard that and they got in touch with me and they wanted to record their band. So um, anyway, I started recording people and then I got a multi-track analog machine so that I could do overdubbing and have a little more control over it. And um, it just sort of built up from there. And uh, I just, then I got uh, a digital, tape system and um, just slowly built it up. And I got the recording studio going as a part-time thing. And um, again, I recorded my band, a couple albums and um, a local blues legend, Warner Williams recorded him. But um, the great fiddler, Joe Meadows, wanted to record and, and there was a record label that, that wanted to put out an album of Joe Meadows in North Carolina, they were located. So, um, he said, well, my friend has a recording studio and, uh, I'll record it up here. So we made a little demo to send the label so they could make sure it had this right sound and they proved it. So we recorded the whole album and mixed it. And, um, uh, and that label went out of business. So I had this mixed album. So I had put my recording of my band and a couple other little things. I just made up the label Patuxent. So it would be on a label. And so we put that album, the Joe Meadows album on Patuxent. And um, I sent it out to a few stations and uh, but i sent it to dave freeman at county records and he really liked it and he gave me a, a really good review in his little newsletter so people started to buy that album and um shortly after that i met frank wakefield um it was the night of john duffy's wake oh um, i was having a I had planned a big picking party at the VFW and uh, there were people coming from all over so I I couldn't go to the viewing but the people that were there said we're going to Tom's party after Frank Wakefield was there so somebody brought him and that's how I met Frank Wakefield and uh, I told him hey Frank I've got a record label if you ever want to record He says, oh, that's nice. And he just kept picking. I thought, that must have sounded stupid. Well, a few days later, Frank Wakefield called me. He says, "Uh, do you sure enough have a record label? I said, yeah. I put out a few records. He says, well, when are we going to record? So um, anyway, so I recorded Frank Wakefield's album. Mm -hmm. That was one of the early, his first one, Midnight on the Mm -hmm. Mandolin. That was one of the early ones. So it just sort of started building up from that. And and uh, that record turned out good and people heard it. And so it it sort of just happened. Well,
1: it's interesting that you never thought about doing that and yet you've had a
2: great success with it. It's it's turned out to be pretty good, you know. Right, I, I didn't set out to do it. Um, but as things started happening, I did a little research to find out what other labels did. Um, Alison Brown, who's one of the nicest people in the world and I have great respect for, advised. She says, "It's." She said, "It's almost impossible to make it in, in the in the label business if you start now." Really? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I um, didn't take her advice. I went on and, and kept going with it. But I think she was giving what she thought to be helpful advice. Mm-hmm. Because maybe things for her at that point were discouraging or something. Well, she and
1: her husband run Compass Records. Right. Out of Nashville.
2: Th- this is when they had six albums out. And maybe, I don't know, I, I don't know why, she didn't think it was a good idea, but I I just. Let it. You said, well, thank you,
1: Allison, and full steam ahead, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh,
2: anyway, we've done a lot of good stuff. At least I think so. And. Um, so if people want to find out more about what is your website, it's uh, www.p as in Paul. Xrec.com like Patuxent Records, Pxrec.com Okay, good. And uh, future plans for any recording coming? Well, um, we're, we're, we've got um, a few artists that, that are we're going to, um, that have been successful. We're gonna try to keep going with them, if they're up for it, I am, like Jeff Scroggins and Danny Paisley, mm-hmm. and we're, we're still starting some new projects. So uh, we're still going, um, You know, we don't have the, the dedicated studio anymore, but um, that's kind of, a, a, a lot of labels are going that way now. And uh, there's a lot of fine studios in this area that, that we can use. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what we're gonna do.
1: All right, so if you're looking for a label, Patuxent might be for you.
2: And might not. <laughs> Sometimes people will um, send me a demo and, um, I'll tell him. well, I think Rounder's looking for something like that. You know, just a joke, you know, I don't, I don't
1: know. So Ken, if you're getting stuff <laughs> over the transom, it's coming because of Tom. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Anything else you want to tell us? Um, no, just. I'm very honored that you selected me to interview and be on your program, and I'm very happy that you're back in broadcasting because we missed you. Well, thank you very much. That gets you your second interview
1: real
0: soon. That was Katie Daly with Tom Minty. More about the Patuxent Music Label at pxrec.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud and is available with links from iTunes Music, Google Podcasts, katiedaily.com, bluegrassstories.com, and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.